All right, Marie. So we are now both agreed that we can create our own thought forms and maybe even our own tulpas. And have them do battle. Yeah, exactly. Right. We know that from Pokemon. But how how do you do it? Like, what's the what's the process of making a tulpa and even of making a thought form? Well, first, we need to talk a little bit about how to control your own astral body and how one can see an astral body or thought form to begin with. And really, at the center of this is just like, how the heck does a photograph work in a camera? Oh, man, you have to take a picture with your mind, dude. You sort of have to take a picture with your mind, dude. It's going to be another burner episode, isn't it? It's going to be great. Jake, roll and tape. All right, so we're we're really leaning heavy into that demographic. I feel oh, oh, of what people who care about cameras, uh, people who care about cameras, Venn diagram with burners. Oh yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And 100%. Pokemon lovers, like that center, that center piece of pie in that in that triple Venn diagram. That's people that listen to our show. Yeah, that hard group of about 10 to 20 folks. That's really who we're hitting with this series. (laughs) So last episode, we mentioned that there are really three types of thought forms, at least in theosophical thought. Those being that which takes the image of the thinker, that which takes the image of some material object, and that which takes a form entirely of its own, expressing its inherent qualities in the matter which it draws around it. Last episode, we talked about type three. We sort of talked about a little bit about type one and the idea of like the the aura of the person or whatever. But we looked at a specific subset of type three. These are the thought forms which take their own identity, but can be both consciously or unconsciously created. The book thought forms looked mostly at those which were created unconsciously, but which could be identified by psychics or those with the ability to see or read auras. This can be done in a number of different ways, from like squinting your eyes and focusing the peripheral vision on someone or something to using special seeing stones or placeful with water. Another way sometimes used is to sort of look past the object you're trying to see, making it go out of focus. And so then by looking at the different ways your vision takes in this person, it's thought that you can sort of pick apart auras or radiating energy from the individual. Like we didn't talk about it last episode, but these are the sorts of ways that they use to see the thought form or the aura that then were used to uh, make those drawings or the paintings, I guess, that we talked about last time. Yes, which were still which are still like bugging me. So, well, Marie, have you ever tried doing this before? Like, have you ever tried making your vision go out of focus and just like seeing like color or just seeing like light kind of filter through your into your eyes? Yeah, or like at night when you just sort of stare at something that is already dark. Yeah. And see it go out of focus and see it change, like almost change colors. Yeah, yeah, like some, yeah, yeah. Sometimes until I give myself like a little bit of a headache. Yeah, no, <laughs> same. I feel like Me too, yeah. Seeing something in, in your peripheral vision is so weird anyways that when you try and focus on your peripheral vision, it becomes sort of, like it, it, it almost becomes kind of self-defeating because you're just like you keep trying to move into seeing in your peripheral. It's like trying to not think about something. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you you always realize like, wait a second, I'm thinking. Yes. It, oh, wait a second. I'm just looking instead of using my peripheral. Vision. Right. I'm just looking at this damn thing I'm just now. staring at it. Uh-huh. Solid. Yeah. <laughs> the way that this a lot of this theosophy, like so remember, right, the way 
the time period we're talking about when these ideas really developed, we're talking about like the 1910s, like late 1800s to like the early 1900s. So like 19, uh, say like from like 1880s to like the 1930s ish. Mm-hmm. You know, even up to the 50s, really, these ideas, um, they're not developing anymore in the 50s, but they're becoming they're becoming starting to be used by other religions. Like, for example, Scientology, who took a tremendous amount of stuff from these ideas and from the books that we talked about in or are talking about in this series. But. Scientifically, at the time, we're kind of in the world of physics and in the physical that we would think about as being kind of, you know, the solid world of measurements and whatever. During this time period, a huge amount of upheaval, right? Mm -hmm. X-rays, electromagnetic waves, like the fact that light was just another type of radiation and that a lot of these things that were both seen and unseen were just a type, you know, energy, just frequencies Mm -hmm. and vibrations of energy pulsating through the air. And the fact that things could have a sort of mixed identity, that things could be both a particle and a wave simultaneously. And, you know, things like, you know, like like Schrodinger's cat, for example, these sorts of almost like the injection of metaphysics into science or into physics, right? So metaphysics yeah. and physics kind of going yeah. around the horseshoe and starting to almost touch again in the center. Right. Or having to having to quantify something that can't be seen. Exactly. Yeah. That that is really the linchpin to all of this and the the real important context, I think, for a lot of these ideas. And one of the first ways that we really started to be able to notice that there were. And and for the everyday person, basically, like not me, not the everyday person, I suppose, but for for an interested layman or layperson to to see these unseen things was in photography and taking photos Mm -hmm. using cameras. So if we think about how a photograph works. The the history of the photograph goes back to uh, daguerreotype. And all phot- photographic processes really work in the same general way, even if the if at the time we didn't fully understand how they work. So how do photographs work? First off, how does seeing something work? Like, how, how does actual, like, vision work in general? What you're seeing around you and what your eyes are sensing, like, what's happening is... A photon hits a surface, so a light, a light source hits a surface. Some of that light gets absorbed by the surface. The stuff that bounces back off of it, the stuff that is uh, kind of rejected from the surface, that is the color of an object that you end up seeing. And so what happens is those photons push, they, they bounce off the object, and then your eye senses those photons and your brain then does a complicated bunch of magic to turn it into an image <laughs> in your head. <laughs> it's not magic, but you know, that's kind of how right, it works. Right. And it's upside down. It's like upside down when it first it comes in. Yeah. Down. yeah. It's crazy. It's just, yeah, it's nuts. The way that a camera works, basically the same thing without the magic. So the way a camera works is if you had a, a surface of something, that changed color or changed form when light touched it, then by directing a lens or directing a a concentrated beam of light through a lens, for example, at that surface, you could take a picture or you could get basically a smaller version 
of that photons of the photons that you're seeing out there in the world. Does that kind of make sense? It does. And it's just I think when I look at it from more of a cultural standpoint, it's like an art history standpoint, like the advent of daguerreotype and a photography is so it's so revolutionary and so different than any other medium that was out there and how people appropriated it and used it was, you know, just, just had sort of more of a mythos and more of lore behind it than sort of your normal, like your normal painting, your normal plein air. I'm going to go outside and I'm going to, I'm going to paint this beach landscape and, you know, and, and then, and then it's sort of this, you know, over time captured versus a you know, even with a daguerreotype that took, uh, like it took some time to develop or it took some time to actually take, but it was mm. still almost instant. Well, it's like, yeah, it's like capturing a, it's capturing a moment in time. Yeah. It's kind of the feeling. And also it's the, it's, I mean, the single most accurate way to get an image of, of what stuff looked like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's uh, right. It, right. It Especially removes- at the time it was like fact. Right. Which yeah. we know is not true. Like photography is not it captures an image, but whether that image is contrived by something else is, you know, it's there's no absolute truth to that image. But at the time it was thought of as like, this is the absolute truth. Like this is capturing that person and even almost more on a metaphysical level, like you were talking about, like capturing the essence or the the actual um, everything else that was happening kind of in the ether around that person. Well, it also, yeah, and it also creates, again, at the time, a lot of the philosophy that we're pointing back to at the time of of this period, right, the 1910s, 1920s, um, back to, like, say, the 1880s, it's sort of a resurgence of Platonism and the views of Plato. And, again, this that had a concept of there being a physical, the physical world and then the world of forms, the world of abstracts of perfect representations of things. And suddenly the camera comes around or this technology comes around that seems to be able to make perfect representations of things. And a lot of these questions of, of memory of how do I know if my memories are real? How do I know if what I'm seeing is real of these other things? Well, the camera kind of solves all that. Yeah, you don't have to remember anymore because you can take a photo if you wanted to. You could take a photo of every moment of every day and fully remember at least the visual representations of what you were seeing. So it cre- it's like the first time almost that there is objectivity, real objectivity in the world of of vision of of sensing. Right, but and it's it, still it, yeah yeah. I mean, I would yeah, I would still argue that it's still there is no such thing. Like that's the perceived well no there is no right? such thing yeah there is no such thing but it, it goes from this like before this i think all of us listening everyone listening here i think would say taste is a subjective sense i think for a lot of people so if i like coffee you might hate coffee if you like strawberry ice cream i might hate strawberry ice cream but like, vision, if you like, but if you vision don't like to, coffee, you're dead to me. Sorry. Well, yeah, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not listening to the show, but <laughs> vision, like sensing or seeing things we consider to be almost an objective sense. We consider everyone sees the sky the same way. Everyone 
everyone with working mm-hmm. eyeballs or or eyeballs that can see color effectively or whatever, we assume that everyone sees the world around us the same way because we we almost think of seeing as a again, it's like seeing the world as it objectively is for everyone, not just how we perceive it. But that's yeah. not true. Nice. And that change in kind of philosophy or thought, the camera makes that possible because you know, imagine if you had a machine that could reliably tell you if something was sour or not, you know, that's it's it's like the same thing here. It it gets rid of the subjectivity of the sense, which is which is just a huge change in the way that the brain of people at the time um, thought about this. I'm certainly I'm talking now about brains as opposed to people. Uh, very strange. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> so, OK, how so. The way that these cameras work then, so any so any camera, again, all a camera is doing, it's taking light in from the surrounding world. It's focusing it down onto a substrate that changes with the application of light, of electromagnetic waves of some kind. And then when that thing is exposed to enough light for enough period of time, um, it develops, right? It, it changes. Mm-hmm. You let the chemical change happen, and then you have an image caused by those light beams in, you know, hitting the surface of the material. And so that's why, like a camera, it flashes because it goes from dark, where there is no light being allowed in, to a moment of light being allowed in, and then closing it back up again. Mm-hmm. And that's also why you have a lens on a camera is again to kind of magnify and focus that light beam. Um, so that when it hits the surface, you don't end up with like you don't need a one to one representation of like the world around you in terms of size. You can get a small picture or whatever. And so the first types of cameras like daguerreotype used uh, a copper silver plate, which uh, had a chemical, a chemical, like a liquid chemical on the surface on it that changed um, upon exposure to light. Other materials, um, other materials can do this, too, with different types of of photo or different, not photo of different types of electromagnetic waves. So for example, stuff that we can't see can cause these sorts of changes to lenses or, or not to lenses, but to materials, right? So Mm x-rays, for example, is a great example of this. An x-ray can also create a photograph, but it'll only, um, the stuff that x-rays get absorbed by the only things x-rays are are, uh, absorbed by or not absorbed by, I should say are bones on the human body at least. So if you right. took an image of if you took an image using a substrate that was only chemically changed upon the addition of x-ray to it, the only thing you'd see were spooky skeletons. <laughs> right. And that's what we see. <laughs> Terrifying, right? See. Or yeah, the worst or if type you of use camera. A certain type of like liquid contrast, then you're able to see organs. Right. Exactly. Organs yeah. are functioning, which is yep. insane as well. Yeah. And so these methods of like so there so you have people out there with cameras at the time and they're realizing like, hey, if I use other photosensitive materials, I can get pictures of stuff that my eyes can't see. So what what are these other things? They must be auras. They must be these other things that philosophers and religious people have told me about for my entire life. And so Mm -hmm. these methods of seeing auras or thought forms using these photosensitive plates uh, come about, right? So for example, um, one of the most common was using a glass lens with a cyanide dye on it. This would react to uh, like ultraviolet or infrared 
a radiation. And so that seemed to be because, again, you're seeing like the heat radiate off of a person's body. That seemed to be the aura of somebody. Yeah. So you had a uh, super safe to work with. Like at the time, all this stuff, super safe. Super well, it's like, it, yeah, they're, right? they're dying. Radiating people. We're giving them poison. <laughs> super good. There's to be fair. Cyanide. It's their cyanide compounds. It's not like right. it is cyanide. It's right? But like still, it, yeah, it's like, you know, you're x-raying people and you're like, I'm seeing your spirit. And it's like, no, you're just giving them cancer. But <laughs> cool. I guess you I guess. Cool. I don't really know what to say. So the the method of using um, of seeing auras in this way famously mm-hmm. was used by a Dr. Walter Kilner. He wrote a book that was initially called The Human Atmosphere and then later retitled it to The Human Aura. And so he tried um he tried using these sorts of photographs to diagnose ill individuals, like to see what was wrong with them. Another method that we talked about last episode was by Dr. Barrett Duke, and he used what's called electrophotography. The way that this works is you basically are applying a voltage to a material. That voltage you're applying um, creates what's called a coronal discharge. A coronal discharge is like, have you ever been to like a science museum and seen them electrify like two tesla coils and then there's yeah, yeah, yeah. a, a yeah. bright light that goes between them that's the coronal yeah. discharge yeah or like the color around the electricity that's the coronal discharge yeah. and so the way this worked was you'd put a material um so you have a you have like a layer of a bunch of different thin pieces of material so you have a insulated layer on the bottom then a metallic plate which can conduct electricity then a layer of glass a layer of photographic film. And then at the top of that, you put the objects you want to see the aura of. You then shock the shit out of it and you create a coronal discharge that leaves an impression on the photographic film. And, and so on whatever you're doing, and whatever are, you're shocking. These are like really cool photos. Some of them, though, mm-hmm. like the, the some of the coolest ones that did were with leaves. And uh, I don't know if you've you've ever seen them before. They're kind of famous ish uh, photos, I guess, in the history of photography or, or or physics, I suppose. They're really cool, actually. So you end up with these very strange mixes of like sensitive chemicals, substrates, and all kinds of invisible stuff that you could suddenly photograph and get objective proof for. Yeah. And really, really quick, I think the one thing that also, again, from a cultural standpoint, that to me is so interesting and seems like it just happens time after time is you have so you have scientists that are i think in good faith trying to find the measure and photography of like they believe in the aura right they believe that they're trying to to find something that hasn't been seen by people before Mm -hmm. and it's a scientific study and then you have just the straight up fraud right well yeah (laughs) that's the other which comes (laughs) relatively soon like it's always like you have true you know true scientific um you know measure and method and the application of, and then immediately right after you have people that are like, hey, you know what? I think I can make a buck out of this. <laughs> These things are always I innocent. I can make a buck out of this. Yeah. I think I can they're, fake this. They're innocent for the first like week and then immediately yeah. the grifting yeah. and fakery starts. Yeah. It's and always that good, way. And even a good nature, like I'll bring it up, like it's worth its own episode. And I know people have done it before, which is the the Cottingley Fairies. Yeah. Right. Of 19, like 1917, which is pretty much it's in this it's in this ballpark. Right. That like these little girls in England, you know, captured in photography fairies in their garden. And, you know, had pictures and Arthur Conan Doyle was 
you know, you know, was in, was intrigued by it and all this, all this stuff. And it turned out, of course, you know, unfortunately that it was fake. They did not capture fairies in, in the camera, but it's like, to me, it's like, it is always so fascinating to see, like you were saying for maybe a week, maybe less, maybe a day and a half. It's this pure or not, at least this well-intentioned thing. And then soon after. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the money starts pouring into somebody's <laughs> yeah. coffers that shouldn't be making yeah. money on it. The yeah. interesting thing, like you mentioned, the, again, the people doing a lot of this work, like obviously real science is happening with this stuff. You know, this is mm-hmm. when people are studying how does radiation affect the the world around us and what does it mean and how is it related to light and how can you measure these things? And, you know, from this time period, like one of the most... In my like one of my favorite pieces of scientific equipment is the electron microscope. And it's basically just a it's just a camera, um, mm-hmm. but it uses electrons instead of using photons. And the reason you use electrons is because you can get much, much better resolution of much, much smaller things. So you end up with being able to to take photos and see things at like the nano um, or not with the nano scale, but like at the micron scale. So just just below, uh, just above nano. Right. It's it's yeah. fascinating the stuff that this technology leads to. But. Again, at the same time, like this is a this is a technology that's not that old. Not many people know how it works, but it's seemingly showing like this is this is the perfect type of of grift because or the type perfect type of magic trick because you can take a photo of somebody just sitting in a room. You can take a photo mm-hmm. of somebody sitting in a room, anyone in the world at any time you can take a photo of them using say a, a lens and a substrate that interacts with infrared light, for example, and take a picture that responds to the stuff they're doing in the room. Mm-hmm. That, you can't you can say this is the aura and that person mm-hmm. has like how do you how do you disprove that that's the aura without being literally the top scientist of the time well you can't <laughs> well, you physics, can't right or or if you're if you don't have that much scientific wherewithal to be able to manipulate the chemicals for that you can also fake it in real time right like you can there's always the the images of the you know of the spirit presence in the photography right which you can kind of tell were done by you know some common illusions like a pe- pepper's ghost or something standing you know in the corner or you know some of them are better better than others but it's it's sort of weird because it almost becomes its own type of mastery and fine art is how how well, can you manipulate an image? So yeah. you're using the science or you're using almost like stagecraft to to create something that is, so again, supposedly more of a subjective in the moment reality. Which to me it's, is kind yeah. of a trip. I no, know, it's like, crazy. That's, it's like it's just a trip. Like it's like getting really good at uh, it's like getting really good at Photoshop. It's you know? like getting but, really good at Photoshop before Photoshop was even a thing. You know, side right. story. When I was in high school, I had a friend who had like a humongous head, right? Like a really, really big head. And but he and he was like a big goof on, like fairly, you know, fairly non. Did not dangerous. see the story coming. I didn't see the story coming. Okay, yeah. very like a pretty nice guy, right? Like uh-huh. you know, whatever. I'm sure if Anyways. he's listening to the show now. He's really pleased with himself. 
<laughs> no, I have no Even idea if he listens to this. Yeah. I doubt yeah. he listens to the show. But anyways, uh, there was well, not a, after a this pic- episode, for sure. No, <laughs> never again. There was a picture of him at a party with like five other people. And I thought it'd be really funny to Photoshop his face in on all the other people's faces. And it looked like really it was the best Photoshop I've ever done, Marie. Oh my and God. for years, that was his like Facebook profile picture. Anyways, <laughs> good times. OK, so. Well, and really quick, the other thing, you know, that I think is worth pointing out at the turn of the century with photography that is sort of almost the inverse of 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 this, of the aura or of the um, of the faking the photo spirits is the Victorian um, the Victorian practice of photographing the dead as yeah. if they're living. Right. So that's almost like the inverse of all of this. It's like instead of trying to capture the otherworldliness of the person, their aura or whatever, or even trying to fake, you know, their out of body ghostral spectral presence, ghostral. I don't know if that's a word, but whatever spectral presence, they're capturing the corpse as a living trying to make it into a living memory, right? So they'll be sitting in family photography, family pictures, uh, you know, at the dinner table or posed, you know, in repose in a chair reading or something. And to me, that's like one, you know, significantly creepy, but then also just a real interesting use of that medium kind of juxtaposed against everything else that's happening with it. It's wild. That's it. That's a, oh God, I hope, I hope our advertisers are something for food. We'll we'll be back after this break. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all, and you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt, the ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words, my story from my perspective, because I know you'll hear other versions, because I want you to have a chance to believe mine, or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. All right, so all of this has to do with the types of 
the kind of science that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Another field, though, that was just really getting its go was psychology and the study of consciousness. At this time period, we have things like mesmerism. We have hypnotism. We have, you know, people like Freud and these Mm -hmm. real deep studies of the way that the mind operates and thinks. And we're starting to starting to give some flesh to the world of psychology and the way that consciousness works. And that has a lot of bearing on the first type of thought form, that which takes the image of the thinker. And also that which takes the image of some material objects, so thought form two. I promise this is getting the tulpas. But let's talk a little bit about a little bit about that first type of thought form. This type of thought form, it's it's not even really a thought form, right? Because again, we talk about how the theosophists of the time, they thought that they thought that your body was made up of different parts and mm-hmm. that your soul, your spirit was was really kind of its own thing that existed independently of the material of your body, the flesh. And this idea gets really fleshed out in a book called The Projection of the Astral Body by Sylvan Muldoon and Hereward Carrington. This is a weird book. <laughs> so. <laughs> really? It's what? a little weird. It's a little weird. Um, this book talks about this book talks about a concept of. So, okay, I'm going to read a little bit from this book in okay. this section here. So here's the here's the beginning here. This is why here we're Carrington. OK, so, quote, the astral body may be defined as the double or the ethereal counterpart of the physical body, which it resembles and with which it normally coincides. It is thought to be composed of some semi-fluidic or subtle form of matter, invisible to the physical eye. It has in the past been spoken of as the etheric body, the mental body, the spiritual body, the desire body, the radiant body, the resurrection body, the double, the luminous body, the subtle body, the fluidic body, the shining body, the phantom, and by various other names. In recent theosophical literature, distinctions have been made between these various bodies, but for our present purposes, we may ignore these distinctions and speak of the astral body as some more subtle form, distinct from the organic structure known to Western science and studied by our physiologists. Hmm. If you've ever seen the movie Donnie Darko, which if you're listening <laughs> to this show, you've definitely seen Donnie Darko. Oh my God, yeah. The, the scene where Donnie is sort of going through time and he has this fluid cord that connects to the back of his head. Oh, yeah. That is literally exactly how the astral body is described by Muldoon and Carrington in this book. Great movie, too, by the way. Pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty great movie. What they talk about is the idea that as when you go unconscious in some way, so when you're sleeping, when you get hit on the head, when you whatever, Uh you can make your astral body, the spirit, come out of coincidence with the physical body. And when that happens, you can move about initially within what they call the cord range and the cord being the life force that connects your astral body to the physical body where it's laying. And that's what that kind of cord is in Donnie Darko, or at least that's what it's alluding Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. This has also been recently reappropriated to bits and pieces by the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So yeah, and this, that well, this also is literally exactly what Scientology calls the Thetan body, right? So it, again, mm-hmm. this book really, really influenced Scientology and therefore a whole lot of other spooky, weird, dumb shit that is going around today. But so <laughs> this book, what they mention is that so this uh, uh, m- most of this is written by Muldoon. Yeah. And Muldoon goes through a lot of <laughs> Muldoon goes through a lot of time in this book being like, if other people knew how the fuck to do this, they'd tell you. Nobody but me knows how to astral project and they're all idiots. It's awesome. Right? Like most of the book, he's just like, these people are, are, are jackasses. They don't know what they're talking he's, about. He's a SME, right? He's a subject matter expert on this. He is the subject he's matter expert the, on like this. like one of the first SMEs. So he talks about how he had his first... He talks about he, he mentions this book. It's like a textbook on astral projection. It's super interesting if you're into this stuff. I highly suggest it. He talks about a huge amount of effects or things that cause the astral body to come out. You know what happens when you accidentally like if you he mentions that you can. Um, a lot of what he talks about today, we know of as being sort of sleep disorders almost Uh, he talks about sleep paralysis uh, and he talks and he mentions specifically making dreams like like true dreams right so dreams where you are uh like lucid dreams number one dreams where you're kind of really in control of the dream but then also goes a step further and says besides lucid dreams you can actually dreaming is one of the best ways to get yourself to astral project because you can control what happens in the dream to start with. So you can kind of create the situations in which you will astral project. Hmm. Okay. So they mention, mm-hmm. they mention um, some of the effects or things that can cause you to wake up, right? So like noise, obviously a slap in the face, water in the face, whatever, right? The kind of cat, stuff again, cat needs to that, be fed. Yeah. Stuff that wakes you up. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they also mentioned that if you are, if you get a, if you get frightened, if you get in the dream itself or in the astral projection state, if you're frightened or if you are uh, upset or whatever, your your astral body will be slapped back into the physical body. So can I ask a quick question about the whole astral projection thing, though? Sure. So here's the thing I don't get. It's in a dream, which is basically in the reality in your head. Yeah. Right. So it's it's not in the quote unquote physical world. Right. So isn't it just really a dream? I mean, even if you're just astral projecting in your head, it's a dream. So they make a distinction between. Even if you can control it, it's still a dream. They make it. But they make a distinction between true dreams and just lucid dreams. Okay, so true dreams are, you know, you're. You're in your underwear carrying a tuba being chased by Nazis, that type of no, thing. No, 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 no. So those are, those okay. are just dreams. Those so are I guess just, they make three I mean. Those are just dreams. Those are dream make, dreams. That's very okay. specific, Marie. Have you dreamed that recently? <laughs> there's, there's, they, but I mean, they I'm make just a like distinction between like, three dreams. Okay. Yeah, okay. they make a distinction between three, right? The normal dreams you have every night where you're in no control <laughs> and weird shit happens. Mm-hmm. The dreams where you are in control, but you're not astral projecting, those are called lucid okay. dreams. Lucid and dreams, And then the dreams okay. where you're you're astral projecting... What they seem to, you know, the, the, and those are the other distinctions, right? So this is what they right. mentioned. But astral projections, you're actually in the physical world, right? Because. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, 
So you that's have to have the that thing. crossover, though. I mean, I'd argue uh, that if it's all in your head, it's all in your head. Like, the, I would see, assume, like, astral projection is, like, you're physically projecting your um, unconscious self into the physical world because you're able to see... Um, you're able to see things in the physical world that you wouldn't normally be able to witness. So Muldoon, because again, Carrington is mostly like the editor of this. Muldoon is the one who wrote the bulk of this. Mm-hmm. Muldoon says Muldoon actually is different than other theosophists or people writing at the time about astral projection uh-huh. in that he says he's like, listen, I've been astral projecting since I was like 12. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, people. And, and so he says he he says that never in his entire time of astral projecting has he ever seen like a higher state of consciousness, the Akashic record, like any of that other crap that other people mention. Yes. He says those, for those, all those, those uh, noobs. He says those for all, Yeah, uh-huh. he says for all intents and purposes, essentially the the world that you're walking as you astral project are is the physical world as far as he can tell. But it is a little bit of a gray area. Like, are you. Are you because you can't interact with anything in the physical world, really? He says he says he's only been able to move things twice ever, you know, and they were like stupid things. He like moved the phone off the hook once, I think. And another one was like he moved a a lamp in someone's room or something. He calls Um, himself. And he he didn't mean to. He didn't mean to. Right. So this is okay. Look, this is what he says. Okay, this is how he talks about the dream control. method. Okay. Okay. One, develop yourself so that you are enabled to hold consciousness up to the very moment of rising to sleep. The best way to do this is to hold some member of the physical body in such a position that it will not be at rest, but will be inclined to fall as you enter sleep. So one method he talks about is like having your head up a little bit, and then as you fall asleep, it kind of falls forward. Two, construct a dream which will have the action of self-predominant. The dream must be of the aviation type in which you move upward and outward, corresponding to the action of the astral body while projecting. It must be a dream of something which you enjoy doing. So his weird example for this that he enjoys doing is riding an elevator. And so he is like in his dream before he astral projects, he's lying on his back on an elevator. And so what you're trying to do is basically they kind of mention almost like inertia of the astral body. So it's like, you're moving forward because that's another example of where the astral body goes out of coincidence is like if you're in a car crash or something um, for a moment, your astral body goes out of coincidence because it will keep moving forward if that's what your will told it was going to be doing. So if you're in an elevator in your dream, you're expecting to keep going up. Um, mm-hmm. And so then at the top of the elevator where it stops, your your astral body will keep moving forward. And when you're at the point of astral projection, right as you fall asleep, it'll keep going forward and eventually you'll regain consciousness as an astral projecting entity. And so three, hold the dream clearly in mind, visualize it as you are rising to sleep, project yourself right into it and go on dreaming. In the dream, the elevator or whatnot begins to move upward coincidentally with the projection of the astral. That is, you imagine that you are starting upward the very moment you rise to sleep. Or the whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the next thing <laughs> they like talk that. about. That well, gives so a it, lot of leeway there. That's a lot of, that's a lot of gray area. The whatnot. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. So Keep going. the other thing they say is, so once you, um, once you've sort of made 
once you've been able to kind of make yourself lucid dream Mm-hmm. To the point where you can, you know, you're dreaming of being on an elevator or a roller coaster or whatever, some moving mm-hmm. object that's moving upwards with your body. Mm-hmm. The next step or the next challenge is making yourself realize as you're dreaming that you're dreaming. Okay. And once that happens, then you are, if you've done everything right, you will be astrally projecting, not just simply lucid dreaming. <sighs> Yeah, but okay, okay, okay. And so what they say is basically, and like, that's the thing, right? They they kind of make a distinction between like, say, the dream world and the real world, but not really. And you have to remember too, philosophically here, they're, they're taking the position that the mental, the mental is the real world, not the physical world that you see. Yes, but then you got to make that leap to get to the tulpa. Right. Like you have to have it in the real world to be the tulpa, not well, the, real world, but the physical world. So what they're mentioning is you kind of do sort of we'll get to that. We're going to get to that. I promise. Right? OK, you kind of do. It's a good Sorry, point. I'm rushing ahead. I'm rushing. No, 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 no. it's a good point. I'm already coming up with the solutions for the tulpa. No, no, it's a really good point. Right. I'm getting impatient. So what the other uh, some of the other stuff they mentioned. Right. So the reason they okay. think dreaming is so important, because he says there are there are other ways to make yourself astrally project that don't include dreaming yeah hitting dreaming is just dreaming is just the literally there's a section that's like a bonk on the head uh (laughs) dreaming is the one that's most common and that's another thing they mentioned too bugs bunny cartoon they basically say like their their argument almost is that dreams like they're it's hard to parse apart maybe Mm -hmm. they mentioned this in another work or maybe i just didn't catch it in this book because i read through it but basically, they seem to make the case that dreams and reality are are basically the same thing, that when you dream, you are astrally projecting. You just may not realize it. And so although there is like so there's the dreams that you control and the dreams that you don't control. Mm-hmm. And in the dreams that you can control, you still may not realize that you're astrally projecting. But you are actually projecting like you are still projecting, you just aren't aware enough of that fact to do anything useful does that kind of make sense yeah i think it it, kind of makes sense but it also seems kind of like a cop-out too like it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it seems like a pretty easy out like you're doing it no matter what you're doing well then that's sort of then again like you know it's just dreaming why does it have to be actual projecting if it could just be dreaming? yeah i mean and yeah yeah, and especially if you can't control it or if you're not aware of it but you still are astral projecting. That's sort of like, well, but then when would you just be dreaming? Well, so then that's is the f- every dream, just an astral projection. And then what's the difference between the two? And why would, why would you even care about being lucid, having lucid dreams if they're all the same? Well, that's the thing is the, I have a problem with this expert. That's you the too, problem. You really do Marie. the subject matter expert, not for you. <laughs> the, the idea is that if you were in control of the, of the dream, mm-hmm. you could, do things like test to see if it was true or not, you know? So for example, although in the dream you could maybe go to weird places and make weird things happen or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, those are just sort of fantasies of the dream. Yeah. Yeah. What they're Being saying lucky. though, is that what they're saying though, is that if you were they they, they are making a distinction still between dream logic dreams where just weird stuff happens and there's no rhyme or reason or whatever and b 
being in the world around you and seem thinking you're dreaming or seeming to be dreaming, but not really. The 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 why is not really touched on in this book as much as the how or or how does you make it happen? Hmm. You know, they they mm-hmm. kind of don't they, like there are a number of times in the book where they're like, you know, how it is that you're in the world around you or whatever. I don't know, but I know you are. This is how you can do it and test for yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. But I think a lot of your questions, though, would lead to other other people's work where like, well, no, you know, maybe there is like a lower dream world where weird stuff happens and there's the world of the real that we live in or all of those worlds just, I don't know, um, planes of existence or something. That we can't, like, you know, in, like in Sandman by Neil Gaiman, right? Is every... Mm-hmm world of the dreaming a real world that kind of coincides into one central world you know yeah it's a very interesting thing yeah well so, i mean it's just i mean for the physical world and the dream world i don't know like the difference is can be relatively straightforward i mean it's relatively stark in some concert and i just don't know like i don't know i i i will have to read the book and take it up and see and check in with the expert myself. To it's very yeah, it's very interesting. One of yeah. the things, one of the things that they mention too, they do mention like experiments you can do. Mm. You know, so they mention like you can have somebody who is the projector, and then somebody in another room who is uh, the receiver, let's say, of the projection. And so the the projector can appear in the room of the receiver at night while they're sleeping. Right. So while that person thinks that they're sleeping, um, a projection of the person can can show up and see them or whatever. Or he mentions how um, like he, he gets he doesn't mention how the dream world works or whatever, but he mentions how, in his view, ghosts are just astral projected bodies that exist out there <laughs> um, that have never realize that they are like they he mentions again this this an important concept in this book of the will of the energy or the the intention that you bring or that you manifest is what your astral body will do and so if someone dies at the moment that they're doing something of importance or has great will then sometimes their astral body will just be stuck because they're constantly in the loop of trying to fill that will, uh, that will feeling that huh. they had, right, or whatever. Um, and so, and mentioned specifically that, you know, one of the things they say is that if the cord that connects your astral body to your physical body is ever broken, you'll die. Like, you die. If you die in the dream, you die in real life, Marie. <laughs> that is my favorite trope. That's that right there is one of my favorite tropes. So scary. And so but again, reading this book with an with reading this book with more than passing knowledge of, say, like dream psychology and weirdness today, because I've, I've had weird dreams my entire life. Mm-hmm. Reading this book today with knowledge about like, well, what, you know, falling dreams are pretty common. Flying dreams are pretty common. Mm-hmm. All these other things. It's hard not to see the that a lot of this is just like this dude is a lucid dreamer on, you know, he's, a, he's someone who's doing, you know, he's doing mushrooms and not realizing, right? Like he's self, he's self hypnotizing. He is uh, causing himself to have these, now, not that mushrooms, you, you know, you need to do mushrooms to be able to do this stuff, but you know, he's lucid dreaming and trying to make sense of it, but it's, but maybe it's just lucid dreams. Like you said, maybe, I mean, I'm just, you know, could be. So, 
how does this end up with tulpas? We, we still haven't touched on, touched on really how we get to tulpas. Tulpas, again, are that third kind, right? Mm-hmm. That thought form, which takes a form entirely its own, expressing its inherent qualities in the matter which it draws around it. Now, Carrington and, and, uh, Carrington and Muldoon only mention this type of thought form once, really. Throughout the book, he says, you know, other people have warned me that as you actually project, there's danger that something else will find you or or you'll meet with a with a an evil will or a bad will or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says he's never had it happen to him except for one time. And so this yeah. is what he says. Interesting. He says. In 1923, a man living in my hometown died of cancer of the stomach. This man's wife was well acquainted with my mother. And a few days after the funeral, chanced to be talking to her. She, the wife of the dead man, confided many things to my mother and told her the real character of her husband, F.D. He had been a brute, all bad, according to her story. And some of the things which were said concerning the dead man aroused within me a hatred of him. I remember very clearly standing back and taking in the conversation between this woman and my mother and how my blood boiled with rage against the dead man. This conversation took place about 7.30 p.m., and by 9 o'clock, I had forgotten the incident. That night, on going to sleep, I experienced a conscious projection. I had undergone the primary stages very perfectly, landing upon my feet just outside cord activity range, and I was free. I walked ahead a few steps, then stopped to look back at my physical body. One seldom fails to do this. My, my eyes and just one. God damn it. My eyes encountered an ominous spectacle, a terrifying sight. There stood FD glaring at me like a maniac. I shall never forget the savage look upon his face as long as I live. I knew instinctively that he meant revenge and was frankly terrified. I did not know what to do, but before I had time to do anything, he leaped upon me. We fought for a few moments, he getting the better of me as he cursed and beat me with all his might. His strength seemed greatly superior to mine at the time, but in a moment, I suddenly realized that my controlling power was pulling me in. So that's another thing that he mentions. When you're in danger in a dream or when you get nervous or whatever, your Mm -hmm. astral body will sort of fly back into your body, like the cord is pulling you back. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. When this power came to my rescue, goddammit, Marie. It's like a bungee cord. When this power came to my rescue, FD seemed like a mere pygmy in strength, for I moved sit men. That that doesn't seem like it's kosher today. No, it Um, it doesn't. For I moved steadily toward my physical body, he clinging on to me as I did so. When I was inside court activity range, even greater power seemed to overwhelm me. I was raised into the air horizontally in spite of all the fiend's efforts to hold me, pulled to a position directly over my physical body and dropped. A drop that caused probably the most severe repercussion I have ever experienced as I became physically alive again. I was throughout as, as conscious as I am this very moment as you are reading this account. Skeptics may say that this was a nightmare, but I know what I am conscious and I know what is real when I am conscious. It was no nightmare. It was real. It was as real as any tussle with a flesh and blood devil could be. Was it Luther who claimed to have had a tussle with a devil? Who knows? Perhaps he did. Although I have never read them, I have been told there are other accounts in spiritist literature, not unlike this one. So. Hmm. What? So. Go ahead. Go ahead. So again, but he draws it. So I think the thing that's kind of, you know, pointed there is he draws a distinction. Like I have, you know, I I was awake. I was in the waking world, right? I was in the physical waking world. But, you know, again, I still have issues with how that actually fits in with the whole astral projection 
dreaming, not dreaming type of thing. Like it could have been night terrors, right? It could have like, again, it could be, it could be some type of sleeping disorder or it could have just been, it could have just been a nightmare. I mean, I hate to downplay it. He seems so convinced and that no one should tell him differently, but like, I, I, what do you think? Well, it's hard because again, the, the, the one thing they keep coming back to throughout the book is mm-hmm. that there's basically nothing you can do as a astral body that has any impact on the physical world. Right. The closest, the closest he can get is learning information about other people or other things that he didn't know beforehand. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, so they, they mentioned like, you know, going to see a friend astral projecting to a friend's house and seeing, you know, what dress they were wearing or something and then asking them about it the next day. Right. You know, or if they lost their car keys, stuff like that. Yeah. Stuff like that. You know, that's, that's really the only thing they can do, Mm -hmm. which feels like a pretty, like that's, that's like, it's, it's like, if you know, being able to turn invisible when nobody can see you, right? Like it's, that's the, right. the very, when no one sucks. is looking at you, you're invisible. That's the worst right. damn superpower, right. you know? Right. Oh, great. Right. You can, right. you can, you can, <laughs> you're just a, you're just a sex pest looking in people's windows. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, great, cool. All this psychic <laughs> power and all, you a pervert. <laughs> all, all this, all this psychic power and all you can do is be a peeping Tom. And all you, you know? can do is be perverted. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting. On the other hand, you know, they give pretty clear instructions. If you wanted to try, I guess you could pick up a copy of this book and give it a go. And, you know, I got to say, too, there are times in my own life where I have dreamt stuff that, you know, like they, mm-hmm. he mentions deja vu. Yeah. And he, he mentions being able, being able to dream stuff that happens in the future. Mm-hmm. I think we've all kind of had that feeling of like, you know, you're. Just this week, I was watching King of the Hill with my wife and we were talking about something. And I said to her, I really like I I remember dreaming this exact conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. there have even been times where like uh, in my dream, I say something and I get into a fight with somebody or I get into uh, I make a bad decision or something. And then I don't do that thing in the real world. Right. Hmm. So and again, the brain is a super. Mm -hmm powerful mm-hmm. computer mm-hmm. there are only so many likely decisions you'll make in a day is it so out of the ordinary or so out of possibility that your brain could just get you know you could dream every possible uh outcome of a day and sometimes the brain is right just by you know sheer chance i don't know i mean Maybe. We, should, we should do in a whole episode on deja vu because i have deja vu i used to have it much more frequently I have it sometimes now, and I also have the sensation of when I had taken a different option sometimes. Yeah. Like we're talking about. Like, I remember, oh, I remember this going something a different way. But I don't know. So then that kind of cues up like, well, what prompted that memory or that response? And is it truly something that happened prior? Just because you are remembering it as being something chronologically that was prior. Well, the other brain just doing some kind of a glitch that makes it feel like, oh, I've done this before. I've I've seen this before. Exactly. Or it could be, you know, like, again, um, you go to work every day. Right. It's probable that you'll have dreams about your job. You know what 
worries or what concerns you have at your job every day. Right. Uh, is it yeah. so unlikely that you'd make you'd have a dream that would be like, hey, don't work with this person because, you know, it goes bad for you. Right. And then you dream that you had, went with that person. You had a bad experience. And then you regretted yeah. it. And then in yeah. the real world, you're like, I'm not going to work with, you know, Bill. He's a dick. Right. Like, Bill is it possible? Uh, you know, it's very yeah. it's it's fascinating. And so, well, yeah, it's 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 uh, and also, dude, you have got to watch the rehearsal. You've got to watch it on HBO because <laughs> it is that premise. That's the premise. Like I'll check it out. if if you could if you could if you have a hard decision, if you could run through every scenario to see the best outcome and best prepare, would that make that decision easier? Super interesting. Love to check and it out. It was, it was the first episode, and I, I was tweeting about this. Even the second one, I don't even know what I'm watching. Like, I feel like I'm watching somebody's thought experiment in their head. And it's so, it's, it's insane. It's really good, but it gets you thinking about these things because then you're like, well, what is, then what is free will? Because you can't, you can't, you can't um, predict every outcome. That's impossible. But like you're saying, you can predict. The bell curve says that, hey, there's there's a good portion of stuff that your brain can probably compute into to, you know, to at least have some type of a, a realistic scenario. But does that account for deja vu? But right? that, like see, when you have deja vus and you're not doing something that's very, you know, again, like you're at the grocery store, you're not at the grocery store, you're, you're you know, getting gas. I mean, maybe it's mundane things, but it's like it's sort of an outlier. I, I've never been able to fully understand it. That's the other part, though, that I think is really important for us to mention here is that mm -hmm. these are what these pe what what people like Muldoon and Carrington and whoever, what they're fighting against actually is almost the idea that you could if you had a good enough computer and our physics and science was strong enough. There are people who legitimately believe you could predict every outcome. Right. It's just materialism. Mm -hmm. Like if mm -hmm. if everything in the universe is just. It's just atoms, you know, crashing into each other. Ultimately, why couldn't you with a good enough computer predict how every single thing would go? And then we don't have free will. Yeah. So right. that's the funny thing. Like, it's, you know, all of these ideas seem ridiculous. But then, like you said, it, you, you know, the end of the day, the problem is we don't do we believe in free will or don't we? You kind of can't. Free will is magic. <laughs> you know, it's you're accepting magic if you accept free will in some way. And so you need to. It's hard to then draw the strong line and be like, well, no, but I believe in free will, but it doesn't matter that that has no physical explanation. All that other stuff is bullshit. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. I don't, I don't know that. That makes sense. So what? It's OK. Told I'm getting us. it. <laughs> Tulpas, right? Of course, this is the burner episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're good. Tulpas. The mm -hmm. the fascinating thing here is now we've come to the point where. All right, so there's an astral body, mm -hmm. your astral body, mm -hmm. and it also appears that you can control the stuff that happens in the astral world through the for, through the input of your will. Yeah. So yes. you can you can cause your astral body to come out of coincidence with your physical body. Yes. You can cause uh, you can move around as you'd like to with your will. Right. That's another thing they mentioned in the book that we haven't really touched on is how do you actually move in the astral plane? And the way you right. do is you just sort of are like, well, I'm going there and then you are going. You know, they mentioned it like almost almost like, you know, 
thinking about like, well, I want to move my arm upwards. You don't, you're not doing like, what is it that, what is the thought that's making your arm move upwards? Cause you can do it without thinking it. Right. 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 He kind of mentions right. that that's basically what you're doing with your astral body, that you're, you're kind of making stuff happen without even realizing right. you are. And it takes practice to get good at it, but that's basically what you're doing. But it also seems that you can, in the astral world, with enough worry or concern or thought on something, you can create things that attack you or move or, mm-hmm. or make things happen. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of tulpa we all think about when we hear the word. And that kind of story is what we're going to finish this series on <gasps> next time. Oh, you had me. You expert. It's going to be great. <laughs> Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days being a grown up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.